Hi, I'm Lauren Good, co-host of Too Embarrassed to Ask, and I wanted to add a quick note before we begin this episode. We taped this interview with Pat Brown, the CEO of Impossible Foods, earlier this week. And shortly after we taped, news broke that the FDA has expressed concerns about the safety of the Impossible Burger, specifically the one ingredient that makes this plant-based burger more burger-like. According to a report in the New York Times, this ingredient, which is called soy leghemoglobin, has raised regulatory concerns, and at this point, the burger is not officially FDA approved. When we asked Impossible Foods for an update, a spokeswoman for the company said that this report was irresponsible, inaccurate, and highly misleading, adding that the burger is totally safe to eat and totally complies with all regulations for food safety. We get the sense that there's still more that's going to unfold here, but for now, here's our earlier interview with Pat Brown. And I should note that in the interview, he actually talks a fair amount about this particular ingredient. Hi, I'm Kara Switcher, executive editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, senior tech editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Two Embarrassed Ass, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the show where you answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. It could be anything, like is bike sharing the thing that will make Uber obsolete, or will Uber take care of that itself? I think we know the answer to that. Will sexism in tech ever change what needs to be done to make that actually happen? See above. And when will Kara Swisher allow herself to have a cookie, or maybe a burger, like a meatless burger? I will have a burger. I cannot have a cookie because I'm still on this whole 30 day. Well, it's a good thing we're not talking about cookies on today's show. Indeed. I may take a bite of this burger that's coming, apparently, but let's explain. So send us your questions. We really do read them all. Find us on Twitter or tweet them to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. We also have an email address. It's TooEmbarrassedRecode.net. And a friendly reminder, Embarrassed has two R's and two S's. Today on Too Embarrassed to Ask, we are talking about food, Kara's favorite topic as of late since she's been depriving herself. But no, we're not talking about Kara's Whole30 diet. Well, it's more like Explain Whole20. what the Whole30 diet is. It sucks. That's all you need to know about it. Yeah, I mean, no, she seems, all whole she's got foods, a spark no in her sugar, eye, no dairy, no bread. You know, all the things that make life worth living. Do you feel better? Yeah. Well, there you go. There's your testimonial. But we're not talking about that diet today. We're talking to Pat Brown. He's the chief executive officer of Impossible Foods, which is known for its Impossible Burger, a meatless burger that is supposed to be juicy. Like a real beef burger. And like it is. Bite we, into a real beef burger. We did. We had it at our code conference and, and had Pat on stage to talk about it two years ago. I can't believe it. Food tech is an area of great interest to me and a great interest right now. Not just the logistics of delivering food or having robots serve food, but actually making the food in ways that are supposedly more environmentally friendly, healthy, or sustainable. And we wanted to talk to Impossible Foods and check in to find out uh, if this kind of approach can actually scale. They also got a recent funding we're going to talk about and mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of other things, where it's going now after a couple of years now. That's right. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So we are actually going to be trying the Impossible Burger at some point on the show. I know that's all exactly what you wanted. You wanted to hear yes. us chewing on the burgers. They are currently being ordered and delivered to us. And so we're going to try it again after we already tried it at Code Conference a couple of years ago. But for Delicious. now, let's have a conversation about it. Yes, Pat, welcome to Do Embarrassed to Ask. So you had been around for six years, and we talked to you two years ago when you were debuting the burgers. You had been scientifically engineering them. I don't know. I didn't want that word to be used, but but you were getting them together and starting the company. So why don't we do a little background for people who don't know the story, just a very brief background of, of Impossible Foods. Uh, sure, yeah. So it's a company that I founded about six years ago with the mission of uh, figuring out how to uh, completely replace animals as a technology for food production. Mm-hmm. 
basically developing uh, a better, more sustainable way to produce all the foods that we get today from animals, meat, fish, and dairy foods, and uh, make them without any compromise uh, in all the qualities that consumers care about, in fact, potentially uh, better than anything we can make with today's technology, by making them directly out of uh, primarily just simple plant ingredients. And you were at Stanford, is that correct? Or yeah, I was a professor in the medical school at Stanford for 25 years before I got into this new gig. Right. And what prompted you? What was the, just seeing all the heart attack? Or what, what was oh, it? no, 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 no. First of all, I loved the job I had at Stanford. It was, it was the job I would have created for myself uh, if I had that power. So mm -hmm. it was just um, perfect for me. But I had a sabbatical, and I wanted to pick the problem where I felt like it could have the biggest positive impact on the world, and it was the use of animals, the food production technology, which is by far the most destructive technology uh, on Earth today. And um, that may sound like a really outrageous opinion, but it's actually an opinion, for example, that's shared by the UN Environmental Program and many environmentalists. And the reason I think you don't hear much about it is that um, people make the assumption that since you know, the vast majority of the world's population love meat, and uh, it's a very important part of their quality of life as well as nutrition, and there's no way in the world you're going to get them, persuade them to stop eating it or even reduce their consumption, and therefore we're stuck. But actually the reason we're not stuck is that the problem isn't that people love meat, it's that we've defined meat too narrowly, that is, we've defined it in terms of the technology that we use today to produce it, as opposed to uh, in terms of what consumers actually value. And we actually have very good data on this. What consumers actually value is the deliciousness, the special kind of deliciousness they get from meat and dairy foods and sure. fish and so forth, the uh, nutritional value, protein and iron and stuff like that, and the affordability and convenience. But it turns out they love it not because it is made using animals. It's in spite of the fact that we use animals to make it. And, and that's what we discovered in our own research, and it's kind of, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And when you frame the problem that way, it just comes down to how can we make foods that deliver everything consumers value in the foods that, that we're getting from animals today without any compromise, ideally outperforming. And uh, if we could do that uh, and just put them in the market and let the market work, we could effectively solve the world's greatest environmental issue right now and potentially with the speed that market-based solutions uh, have. And um, as a scientific problem, it was something that, that was in my comfort zone. It's just basically how do we make something that's defined in terms of its biochemical properties I felt sure I could do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, can you talk about plant-based meat and how it works, just, again, for non-scientists? And, and the juiciness, you just referred to it as the experiential part of meat, which gives people pleasure. That's, is that just for marketing? You, I think it's necessary. People really like that part of, of a burger, for sure. That's how they market them anyway, when you see an ad or anything. Well, there's a whole bunch of things that, that are important to consumers, obviously. Yeah. And um, juiciness is part of it. The textural properties, the mouthfeel, the way it uh, behaves when you cook it, smells. the way it smells, the explosion of aromas you get uh, during cooking, the flavor experience, the whole shebang. And if you compromise on any of that, uh, it's going to be at your expense because consumers are, are, are not going to compromise on the pleasure they get from meat. And so for us, um, it was a big scientific challenge 
because, you know, although the nutrition and, and affordability part is a piece of cake, that, that was already solved a long time ago. You can get all the nutrition of, of a burger for a 20th the cost with readily available plant sources. But deliciousness was really hard, and, and, but it was just a, scientific, a hard scientific problem. And fortunately, we have uh, just by far the best group of scientists ever to work on food. And they studied meat as if it were a disease, basically, <laughs> i.e., you know, if you're uh, trying to come up with a cure for some cancer, you start by doing the hard work of understanding in fundamental terms uh, how the normal cells behave and what goes awry in cancer. And then you can, rather than taking wild swings at the problem, you can make very, very deliberate choices uh, in solving it. And we took the same approach to meat. We wanted to understand precisely in molecular terms what gives rise to all those sensory characteristics that consumers value so that then we were sure we'd be able to do this and it proved true. We could go out and find uh, sustainable, scalable, affordable plant sources for ingredients that matched with respect to the salient biochemical properties the molecular components of meat and then use that to make uh, Right. Talk about that a little bit more in specifics, but also in terms that, as Kara said, non-scientists would understand. What Sorry. is it about your? Oh no, that's okay. What is it about your burgers that makes gives it that juiciness? What is the? And, and what plant, technically plant is meat doing? made out of? What just I know. Oh, oh sure, it's made out of protein, not carbohydrates, that we get from wheat. A protein, not carbohydrates, that we get from potato. Fats vegetable oils, mostly coconut oil, and a critical ingredient is um, a protein that we produce in yeast called, uh, uh, it's a heme protein, that turns out to be basically the single thing that separates meat categorically from all other foods in terms of its flavor profile. And um, Heme meaning blood. Well, heme is a, a molecule that's found in every living cell bacteria, plants, and so forth. It's super abundant in animal tissues. And uh, in blood, it's the most familiar place where you see heme because in hemoglobin, heme is the molecule that um, carries oxygen from your lungs to your tissues. In fact, geeky science, I mean, basically, heme is the molecule that is the kind of interface between organisms and the oxygen in the air pretty much across the board. It's, if, if heme didn't exist, I would say life on Earth wouldn't be able to benefit from the oxygen in the air. So it's, it's an unbelievably important molecule um, throughout life. But it turns out that that's not why it's valuable in meat. It's tasty. Yeah. Heme is a great catalyst. And uh, uh, it catalyzes a chemical reaction in your mouth that generates the, the flavor and smell of blood in the raw form. And uh, when you cook meat, and the protein that's holding the heme unfolds, it catalyzes all the reactions, all the cooking chemistry that take simple nutrients like amino acids, sugars, and fats that are present in any cell and turns them into hundreds of um, volatile uh, aroma compounds that are the unmistakable taste of meat. Taste of meat. All right. Now, why haven't others done this before? You've been working on this for several years, but distribution is limited. Uh, Meanwhile, people can buy all kinds of veggie burgers right now at their local grocery store and Beyond Meat Burgers at Safeway and Whole Foods and now Kroger's, too. How do you get this to mass distribution, and and what's necessary to succeed? I mean, first of all, why have others basically do 
versions of burgers that just they taste like veggie burgers essentially they don't taste like anything like and they're meant to be replaced but they don't really replace yeah i think it's i i, I can't give a perfect answer to that i'd say the vast majority of people who have set out to make foods that are ostensibly replacements for meat they start out with the premise that their target consumer is someone who's looking for an alternative to meat right. our mission requires us to compete successfully for the hardcore, uncompromising meat lover mm-hmm. who has no interest or in minimal replacing. interest in replacing meat, but will replace meat if you, if you deliver something that, that outperforms in terms of what they value. And to do that is a really hard scientific problem. So you have to approach it in a way that food companies, just in general, I think this pretty much across the board, don't approach food, which is start by studying so we basically said, step one, we have to understand meat better than it's ever been understood before. We have to be the, the world's meat experts mm-hmm. before we even start working on this problem. And that's how we were able to discover a lot of very fundamental things about what underlies the sensory properties of meat, particularly heme. And, and I would say, basically, without heme, you can't make meat. Heme, if you crave meat, if you crave the flavor of meat, what you crave is the flavor of heme and its reaction products. Okay, so nobody's ever gone at that way, gone at it, the idea of, it's, it's interesting to say you're trying to switch meat lovers, not people who don't want to eat meat anymore. Yeah, because so, our... Yeah, I'd be like my, my profile. If I could, if I do eat meat, I'd rather not, but I, but I like meat. Yeah, you and Everybody. the vast majority of people that you're not going to stop eating meat, but you don't value the fact that we no. use animals to we're produce aware it. of the mm-hmm. problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for us, the, def- the mission of the company is to solve this big environmental problem. The way we're going about it is by creating products that can compete in the marketplace against the foods we get from Give animals. Give the people what they want. Yeah, and compete in the marketplace, particularly for the consumers who are currently buying the foods that we get from animals, not vegetarians. We have zero interest, really, in, in vegetarian customers. In fact, you know, I'm not being ironic. Every time we sell a burger to a vegan or vegetarian, it's actually a complete waste in terms of our mission. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I've had the burger and I'm yeah. going to have it, but okay. yeah, I guess I'm someone that you don't necessarily need to turn because you don't. Maybe my significant other is because we're a split household, and so yeah. it's always good yeah. if you can sort of. Yeah. You know. But you um, but how challenging is it to get this to the mass market? I mean, you just you just opened a factory in Oakland, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, where you said you plan to make one million pounds of ground plant, I use mm-hmm. quotes here, beef, a mm-hmm. month, which is a lot. And, we, and Kara asked earlier about mass distribution in grocery stores and how challenging is that to make this heme component a reality, you know, at sort of a, a mass scale? Well, first of all, the amount of ground beef that's sold in the U.S. Um, every year, it's about a billion pounds a month. Oh, so a million pounds sounds like a lot to me, but it's 0.1% of you know, the, the volume of ground beef that's sold every day just in the U.S. So it's a huge scaling problem. Um, we knew that going in. I mean, we, in our kind of strategic plan, what we always are looking ahead to is by 2035, we want to have basically catalyzed the replacement of animals as food production technology globally, full stop. And, um, and that means we're always thinking about scale and supply chain and so forth not just immediate, but long-term and planning accordingly. Um, and it is a big challenge. For the heme, we had to, that was, that was something we had to do all ourselves. And fortunately, we have just this, the, the, 
I mean, I can't say enough good things about our R&D team because these guys are just the most amazing scientists. And um, they figured out a, a scalable, affordable way to produce heme in sufficient quantities, arbitrarily scalable, to match the heme content of all the world's meat and fish supply. Right now, we just have to produce enough for our burger production. Um, but basically, we engineered a yeast cell, or they engineered a yeast cell, our, our R&D team, um, to be able to, the yeast is naturally able to produce heme. It's completely self-sufficient to produce heme, but basically they turbocharged its heme biosynthesis and, um, and introduced a gene for a plant protein that kind of holds the heme and, and delivers it when you cook the meat. So you're saying this can be produced at scale? Oh, yeah. It's a very non-trivial problem, but it's one that our R&D team has figured out. Hmm. All right. So let's get to the business, too, more specifically. You just got a funding, a big funding from a bunch of people. How much yeah. was it? It was uh, on, on the order of um, a little above $75 million. A lot of money. A lot of money. From yeah. a lot of the biggest Silicon yeah. Valley for, for For people like me, that's serious bucks. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of money from anyone. What's your company valued at now? That's confidential, confidential information, yeah. A lot. It's a um, lot of a lot, a lot of burgers. A lot of burgers. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it was too easy. But so here you are, you a lot of money to do this because you got to grow the distribution, you got to grow the making right. the, and marketing. Probably marketing is probably an enormous uh, thing besides just making the burgers themselves. Um, it's it's small compared to the making part. Right. But, um, and so far we've had virtually no marketing budget. Because you're getting a lot of press about it. Yeah, yeah. we've just relied on that. Yeah. But, um, but when we go to scale, that's going to probably be more and more Yeah, absolutely. Important. So who do you consider your biggest competitors now? Is it, is it like a Hampton Creek, which makes the mayonnaise, or Beyond Meat, or the beef industry, or is it all uh, of these? No, no, no. We, so it's just the uh, incumbent industry that's producing. Beef. For our burger, it's the, the beef industry, yeah. Um, and that's that's really the only competition we care about. We anyone else who's making a plot product that um, can compete against meat from an animal for a meeting consumer is an ally, not a, a competitor. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the scale of the problem that we're taking on, you know, I would say seriously, we would welcome more anyone else who's who's um, doing that well. So no, we have zero interest in, in competing with anyone else who's in that business. And it would be stupid from a business standpoint as well, because the uh, um, market size of the you know meat industry globally is more than a trillion dollars a year. The market size of the you know Veggie meat replacements, I don't even know how big it is, but it's minuscule by comparison. Mm -hmm. So we, we have zero interest in competing for how that. How do they feel, the big beef guys? Because I'm guessing they're guys, and I'm guessing they're scary. <laughs> I'm scared of them compared to the cigarette guys. They're all actually mostly women and quite tiny. But, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, how do they feel? I mean, I can't really speak for them. I, I think that uh, they haven't really um, overtly done much to um, threaten us. So um, I, I suspect that when we're larger and, and having an impact on their uh, market that, you know, they'll be some negative reactions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they feel, I think they've got people, they got the, they got a lot of people talking about it, eating meat more than ever, I think, because the rest yeah. of the world is all picking up on China and areas that never did. Yeah. I mean, it's this is the reason why, um, you know, internally we feel such a sense of urgency about our mission and why we have set such ambitious growth goals, even though 
you know, we could be perfectly successful as a company with a much less ambitious goals. And because we see this such an urgent problem, the world, you know, the global consumption of meat is expected to go up by about 50% in the next wow. 25 years. And we're already using about half of the um, land surface of Earth, either grazing or raising feed crops for livestock. That's land that formerly provided, you know, wildlife habitat and so forth. And and then there's, you know, the greenhouse gas footprint and the water footprint and all those sorts of things. And when you look at how bad the footprint is right now and you increase that by 50%, it's pretty catastrophic. So um, we have to get ahead of that. What's a goal for you in terms of the reduction of meat consumption? If you could see the average American family consume X amount less meat No, we want to consume them. We want them to consume as much meat as they want. We just don't want it to be made from animals. And... And so you're redefining me. We are, we, yes, that's exactly the way I, I think about it, is that actually, and it's interesting, if you think about it that way, you know, the space of possibilities for meat, defined as a food that has that unique flavor and sensory and nutritional profile, today is limited by the finite number of animals that are being used as a technology to produce it. But if you say, well, there's this particularly sort of broadly defined flavor and sensory profile that anyone would recognize as meat. And if you say, I want to, I want meat for dinner, any number of things will satisfy it. But today we can only get them from this small set of possibilities that really are just tiny, ti- a tiny fraction of the space of possible uh, meat flavors and textures that could be created. We don't have those limitations. I mean, we started with a bunch of stuff that doesn't look anything or taste anything like meat and made something that looks and tastes exactly like meat and is recognized as meat. And uh, it happens to be um, beef, but it could have been brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. Or, um, or we could have just said, let's create the meat that if it were on the menu, a meat-loving consumer would choose it above every other meat on the menu. Right. How I much like does this, we have a pile of burgers that have just arrived next to us, how, and they're from Gott's Roadside. How much does one of those cost? I think it's 11 bucks. So it's an $11 burger, which I'll say this in the Bay Area, there are more expensive burgers, if right. you can believe it. But for some families, they go to a drive through and yeah. they can get a full meal for a portion, a fraction of that. Yes. And that is their motivation. I mean, and they yes. have to feed their families, right? So at some point, how do you make something like this even more accessible? Oh, yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's really important to us. So from the get-go, we had to have a trajectory to be able to produce meat as uncompromisingly delicious as anything out there uh, at a substantially lower cost than, you know, the animal-based technology can do it. And the economics are very tilted in our favor because um, the way we produce it is so much more resource-efficient I mean, we use a, a quarter of the water, a 20th the land, you know, one-eighth the greenhouse gas emissions, way less fertilizer and pesticides and stuff like that. That translates into cheaper production costs. And when we look at the technology we have today and, and project it at scale, there's a clear trajectory to being able to produce this product and basically all the um, meats that were are in our pipeline um, at prices that are um, at or below the cost of the cheapest meats on the market. Right. And, and what's I, the timeline for that? When will that happen? Probably, let's just say maybe 
three years or so. It really it, it really depends on reaching a certain you know scale, scale of with production. the beef with the beef. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we but obviously we can't achieve our mission unless we have a product that competes successfully consumers everywhere that any meat or fish or dairy foods so are McDonald's sold. So McDonald's, whatever. So mm-hmm. so what other pro- let's finish up before we get to readers' questions. Other products: chicken, steak, fish. Um, yeah, we were working on all of those. Which one's closest to? Um, it's hard to answer that because we have, you know, we're building a technology. Our technology platform is kind of meat agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing easier about about beef flavor than well, except ground beef is probably easier than a piece of steak. Right? Yeah, because it doesn't have anatomy. So yeah. from a from an engineering standpoint, producing <laughs> producing things that don't have anatomy, so yeah. to speak, uh, um, is easier. But um, but producing things that have you know that that mm-hmm. preserved anatomy is completely doable, and we've we've done prototypes and so forth. The issue for us, and you kind of hit on early on, is is um, scaling something to you know the scale of just the U.S. ground beef market. It's a huge scaling challenge, a billion pounds a month of of just ground beef. So we're building up the technology platform. And we have prototypes of all those other products that are under development. But which we release when is really going to depend on when we have the bandwidth and right, sort you don't of what Don't start on shrimp. That'll, that'll send you, that'll be 20 years. Shrimp. Why is that? I don't know. Shrimp seems hard, speaking of anatomy. Unless um, it's coconut covered and then nobody yeah. cares what's in there. Like, yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> just, like, just delete it. Actually, one shrimp of the interesting things. Coconut shrimp. I'm just telling you. Just, that is a little tip I just gave you. Like, coconut you know, shrimp. Okay. Kara's coconut shrimp. Royalties. Royalties. Yeah, I'm that just saying. No one cares once the coconut fried on. How about Swisher's fishless sushi? <laughs> no. I, love I think sushi. one of the that things about anatomy, though, here's the thing. Here's something to think about. I'm calling it anatomy. I love that. That's not necessarily something that uh, is hugely valued by meat lovers. I mean, you get, if you're using cow as your production system, you know, you get along with all, that's what it is, it's a technology. I mean, I I, I feel like a good analogy is horses were power transportation 200 years ago. Yeah. And, um, you know, in retrospect, it's a ridiculous, but but people just assume that that was, that was just it. The technology system available. You got whatever the horse could deliver and that Mm -hmm. was, that was it. And right now you get whatever the cow can deliver, and that's it. And not everybody really likes all the gristle and, you know, you get a recall when there's bone fragments in your hot dog or whatever. Mm -hmm. So when... These cows are inefficient. They did not evolve to make meat. They're inefficient. And they're just not very good at it. And the whole process of growing to feed them in order for them to produce this is Time to go, cows. Time to move along on the food chain anyway in a minute we're going to take some questions about the future of food for our readers and listeners and pat is going to answer them we have a lot but first we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor moo (laughs) no ka-ching thank you this show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. are you hiring do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates with ZipRecruiter, you can post all of your jobs to 100 plus job sites with just one click then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people 
to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, more than 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to the office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. In the information age, data is the new oil, which is why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Kinesis, a powerful new way to collect, process, and analyze streaming data so you can get timely insights and react quickly. Websites, mobile apps, IoT sensors, and the like can generate a huge amount of streaming data, sometimes terabytes an hour. If processed continually, all that data can help you learn about what your customers, products, and applications are doing right now and take actions in real time. Amazon Kinesis from AWS lets you do that easily for less. With Kinesis, you pay only for the resources you use. No minimums, no upfront commitments. Learn more at kinesis.aws. We're back from a break of eating impossible burgers, which are plant-based, just plant-based meat, essentially, with Impossible Foods CEO Pat Brown. Pat, they were delicious. And now, and Lauren is still eating over here. I'm wrapping up because I figured people would not want to hear me chewing on the podcast. Yes, exactly. And actually, we put them out for some people here at our office, and they ran. They ran to get them, which is fascinating. Do you think it tastes like a burger since you eat real burgers? Yes, they think it's just like it. I just had a bite. It it does. It does. It tastes like a burger. I haven't had it by itself, but I don't eat burgers by themselves. So, um, Hmm. but I don't eat a lot of stuff on burgers. But it it tastes very close, and it looks. It certainly looks like a burger for them. Ask Tracy to make her tartare. Yes, her tartare. Yeah, I will. I will. I will. She's a good friend of mine, Tracy uh, Jardinier, who is uh, owns Jardinier in San Francisco, and she loves the Impossible people. And that's where I tried the first one, and they're delicious. They're quite delicious. She really the burgers she cooks a lot of crisp on it, a lot of. Mm. So it feels like I like that in a burger, which is great. Yeah, I do. I like meat, and I, this is, I would use the power to have this over anything, but I can't cook it very well. And now we're going to take some questions about this from our readers and listeners. Lauren, you want to read the first question? Sure. This is from Joe Zuli, who asks, I know this isn't the point, but how healthy is the Impossible Burger versus beef or turkey? Hashtag too embarrassed. I think um, when you ask how healthy it is to someone who's a scientist, it's a much more complicated question than than it sounds. Um, we have a company policy that's unbreakable that we're not going to ever put a product on the market unless we believe it's healthier for the consumer than what it replaces. That's an internal thing. And um, although we don't market it as being a healthier product, we are committed to making it a healthier product. So it's it's got the same protein content. It's got um, the same iron content, actually higher iron content, and it's the same form of iron, heme iron, that it, your body is particularly good at absorbing. Similar calories, uh, slightly lower fat, no cholesterol. Um, no cholesterol, it's a critical point. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, plants don't have cholesterol, so you get that one for free. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we're going to be continuing to make it healthier and healthier. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the things that I think Maybe one of the most critical things to understand about Impossible Foods is that the advantage that we have that I would say, in my mind, just guarantees our success is that we can continue to improve this now until forever. 
and the cow is not going to get any better at being meat. There's and no innovation going on with cows. No innovation. They're not even thinking about it. No. I mean, look at those cows. No. They're, They're not deep in, deep in thought about <laughs> yeah. how to be delicious. And, and it's very similar to um, power transportation replacing the horse. The problem, one of the problems with the horse is it was never going to get any faster, right. whereas we're still getting faster with power transportation and, and so forth. Or more efficient. So we're, one of the things that we're continually optimizing is the nutritional profile because, first of all, it's a core value of the company, and secondly, it's something that consumers care about. So it's a win-win. So in terms of calories... How many calories would four ounces or eight ounces of this meat have in it? It's about the same as um, a burger made from a cow, but um, I'm not sure I remember the exact number for. And there's wheat here. There's wheat here, so if you're gluten free, it's a problem. Yeah, it's got it's got gluten in it, so if you have gluten intolerance, it's not for you. We're working on a gluten free version, but gluten free meatless. Meat so, okay. so to answer Joe's yeah. question, it seems as though if you're just speaking from a purely caloric perspective, that turkey may still be leaner. I think turkey, no cholesterol. around four ounces, if you look it up, it can be anywhere from 115 calories to 150. I mean, the, yeah, the numbers vary. No but beef is generally, it tends to be more it's dense, more dense. Yeah. And it seems like this is a cholesterol is a big issue. But cl- right. But there's the, there are other things to health beyond counting calories all right next one is email from daniel freudenberger any plans to sell retail in grocery stores like whole foods or whole foods slash amazon and when will it be available home consumption on mass what do they think about direct to consumer plays in food Hmm. well there's a bunch of questions there so first of all well getting there are definite plans and uh Again, obviously, if, if our goal is to um, be anywhere that meat is sold, that implies that you know retail, direct consumer, and so forth is in the plans. Um, we don't have the exact timing of that ready to announce. About in the U.S., about half of all the ground beef sold and consumed in the U.S. is is um, consumed in restaurants. Hmm. So that's five more than five billion pounds a year just in restaurants, which again is about 100 times more than we're going to be producing a year. So um, there's still lots of room to expand in restaurants, and from a mark, uh, you know, kind of branding standpoint, there are some advantages there. But I'd say within a few years for sure, you'll be able to buy, um, buy our product, maybe products in grocery stores. And as far as direct-to-consumer, yeah, we're looking hard at that. I think that, like, you know, I'm, I'm not a retail expert, but I would say that it seems reasonably clear that that's a very expanding area, area and it has advantages for us in terms of we don't have to worry about where they place our product in the store and um, anything else somewhere. or where, what happens to it. I assume they have the same problems of degradation as uh, meat does. You have to, it has a certain shelf life too, correct? Yeah, so the nominal shelf life of our burger is pretty much identical to ground beef. Mm-hmm. You know, we have huge advantages in terms of food safety, mm-hmm. obviously, because, you know, if you if you wanted to design the mo- the least food-safe environment in which to produce food, I think a slaughterhouse would be a pretty good approximation. Yep. Um, so we can make it with, you know, much safer in terms of microbial um, safety, but um, what limits the uh, shelf life is um, just the, you know, flavor deteriorates over time just as it does in meat. Right. 
And also, it, with the home stuff, you'll have to teach people how to cook it because it's not as good. If chef's doing it, I mean, like Tracy doing it is different than me cooking it. And, I, and you could really – most people can cook a burger at home pretty easily. Yeah. Well, we, we – uh, that's – before we um, have a retail product, we're going to make sure it is a slam dunk for a home cook to cook it properly. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's key. Kara, I like how you're on a first-name basis with all of San Francisco's famous chefs, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. I am. They're all lesbians. Mm-hmm. That's why. Anyway. We all know each other. And there you have it. Kara Swisher. <laughs> and the men are, too. In their own this way. has been a great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. <laughs> Kara, just go to the restaurant. Tracy Kara will get lovely. you in. I met her many years ago. She's More questions. Me. In any case. She's Next question. jealous of my ability to get tables I am. in San Francisco. You never invite me. Peter Johnston wants to know, when are they coming to the UK? Or elsewhere, globally. Yeah, They're so again, the US, right? or? We are, we're actively working on an international launch plan. It's still the same sort of uh, scaling issue. Such a huge market and a huge demand in the U.S. that, um, you know, just scaling to meet that demand is, is, is a challenge. But we're looking hard at international markets, developing potential partners, and, and, and then introducing a new product into those markets, depending on the country. There's regulatory issues you have to go through and so forth. But we're, we're definitely going to be there. What's probably your biggest in, market in, here in this country? You mean geographically? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's 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 actually limited by it's where do we have the most stores? Mm-hmm. So I'd say probably Southern California, but possibly Texas. So, um, oh, you're going right to the heart, are you? Oh yeah, of course. Wow. So where the meat eaters are, Those you know? Meat guys are mean. I'm just that's, telling I'm you telling that. you that's if given our mission, we want our product right where, wherever Texas. the meat eaters live. Right and into te- I like Texas. That is, Texas is Mostly big, Austin because they're really Big hip. meat country. <laughs> yeah. um, I think we're about in... Blue in, City and Red State. Yeah. We're in about 10 restaurants in Texas and maybe about 10 in the LA area and then mm-hmm. New York and San Francisco, uh, Las Vegas and we're... By the end of the year we're going to be in dozens of cities. Where are all the cows? There's a lot in California. Where where do the cows live? Probably California. There's a lot of cows. All over. Yeah. I mean, 48%, according to the USDA, of the land area of the continental U- United States is used for animal farming, and the large majority of that is cows. So. Has anyone told them this is coming? They're going to be really disappointed. The USDA? Yeah, the cows will be thrilled. The cows? They won't just be exist. hanging out. I know. They'll be like, <laughs> you know, I don't even have to move. <laughs> Oh well, God. we're <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm gonna stop you right there. Next question. No, wait. I just have one follow-up question, which right, is, okay. I think you started to say when you thought you'd be overseas by, um, and I don't know if we got to that. I just, I, I, I we don't have, have it pinned down. I'd say, I'd say within a few years for sure. And one thing about the USDI, I just want to say they care a lot about farmers and agricultural development, obviously. And again, one of our core missions, and and it's definitely going to happen, is to actually create better jobs in the communities right now that are supporting the meat industry. And, you know, that's baked into our business plan is that we want to create jobs wherever we're displacing jobs. So yep. I think that Good, Pat, for saying USDA that. should love us. I appreciate you for saying that. All right. This was an email from Ann Lundberg. It was kind of gross to have dripping red juice from a non-meat burger. Would have preferred better actual taste than that feel. Uh, Sorry, Anne, I think a lot of people don't agree with you. Also, the calories are similar to the real burger, and if I remember correctly, it isn't particularly healthy, not just beef. Just don't get the upside. For someone like Anne, who is not convinced by an impossible burger, what is the upside? Pat, make your sell here. Yeah, so if we haven't won you over yet, and it's just a matter of time mm-hmm. with the flavor, a lot of a lot of uh, consumers, the upside is, is just the eating experience. But the thing that um, was 
the whole purpose for doing this was to um, reduce the environmental footprint of the um, meat production process. You know, our burger, if you eat a quarter pound impossible burger compared to the same burger made from a cow, you reduce your greenhouse gas footprint by the equivalent of 17 miles of driving an average American car, your water footprint by the equivalent of a 10-minute shower, and you free up 75 square feet of land for um, wildlife restoration. And if you care about it, you know, you um, slight, fractionally reduce the number of cows being consumed. When our Oakland facility is in full production, we're going to save every year the same amount of water that um, Americans consume, every American as tap or water bottle consumes in a year. And um, we're going to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by the equivalent of taking 80,000 cars off the road and um, free up a land area that's about four times the area of Point Reyes. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat, get on board. Ann, get on board. Ann, and, get on board. And we're going to save a cow from being slaughtered every 16 minutes. Wow. So that's if those things matter to you, Ann. those are Otherwise, other forget it. Don't eat it. All right, next one. Next one is from Jeffrey Wu. And Jeffrey uh, runs, actually, he didn't write this. He just tweeted at us. But I know he runs a company that used to be called Nutribox. Now it's called Human. And it's one of these uh, sort of biohacking kit companies. He asks, what's their thinking around cell-cultured meat? Well, I think that um, it's going to be, for all practical purposes, impossible to um, scale that process economically. So whereas I feel like the motivation for it, I just couldn't, you know, I completely applaud. You know, at this point, you're talking about making something that replicates an animal tissue. And if that were an easy task or remotely economically feasible, it would be happening on a much larger scale with human tissues. And that's, it's not happening. And when it does happening on any kind of scale, it's, it's uh, really expensive. But the other thing, I think there's a fundamental kind of uh, erroneous assumption in the cultured meat thing. I think it's basically the same as, you know, if you were 200 years ago and you said, you know, we need a better, better way to get our car to move, let's, you know, make horses out of stem cells. Mm-hmm. That would be stupid for any number of reasons, including the fact that now you, once again, you've bought into all the limitations of the existing technology. You're never going to be better than... The, horse. the existing technology, whereas with if you take a completely different approach where you can control the flavor, the texture, the nutritional properties, everything about it, you no longer have the limitations that are built into so a cow. no better cows. Let's not yeah. make better cows. Let's make yeah. better. I wouldn't mind growing people, though. All right, next question, Evan Rogers. Assuming that beef is bad for the environment, what can or should be done about existing meat subsidies in the United States? A Sacred cow for our politicians, so to speak, the one that doesn't get killed and eaten by Donald Trump. Anyway, well well done with ketchup. First of all, I I think that realistically, I don't think much is going to be done about meat subsidies. And from our strategic standpoint, it doesn't matter because without – with those subsidies in place and no no advantages to us, we have a clear trajectory to beating cows on cost – as well as flavor and nutrition and subsidies. so forth. So we're, this is an entirely market-based, consumer-driven mission. It just falls on us. We have to deliver what consumers you know, care about, and that, that includes deliciousness, nutrition, and affordability. And if we can do that, 
all the subsidies in the world, um, you know, aren't going to matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in some ways, you're subsidized as well, but you're subsidized by venture capital. And I don't mind taking their money. Well, None of us do. We're not, su- I mean, we're not going to be successful as a business being subsidized by venture capital. Right. We're, we're being launched by venture capital. But if, if we aren't profitable as a business very soon, then none of this yep. will matter. But um, incidentally about Oakland, we expect to be making a positive gross margin, a substantial positive gross margin on every burger sold out of the Oakland facility. So relatively soon we'll be in a position where we can, you know, fuel our own growth, not necessarily at the rate that we want to go, um, just from revenue from our sales. So mm-hmm. we won't All be right. subsidized by anyone. All right. Next question is from Sean McVeigh, Mr. McPet on Twitter. Are they planning on moving into something beyond a meatless burger? Seems like a pretty narrow niche. Uh, You talked about that a little bit earlier. We talked about other types Mm -hmm. of meat. Not narrow. It's an enormous market. It is. So it's not a narrow niche. All right. See see earlier, Sean, in the podcast, because we did talk a little bit about that just before the jump. Uh, Another question from Carolyn Choi. How much does it cost to create one batch and or one impossible patty? That's a good question. Well, the detailed information there is confidential right now, but I can... I can give you kind of a directional answer to it, which is that when we're um, producing out of our facility we're building in Oakland, um, that'll be up and running any moment now, we will be making a positive margin on every burger we sell. We'll be selling it to restaurants who will be selling our burger at basically the same price that they're selling their cow burgers, um, and they'll be making money on those sales too. So I think you can infer from that broadly how much it costs for us to produce a burger. And then I'll say that basically we intend within, you know, two or three years to be able to produce a burger that will be cost competitive at fast food restaurants and at, you know, mass market supermarkets and so forth. So pretty much in the same uh, price ranges as the cheapest ground beef. And we expect to do it profitably. All right. All right. Last question. I'm going to read them together because they're sort of similar. From Jules Sparks, who's from Berlin, and then Ab Hilash Bingi. Two questions in the same area. Pat, what are some of the challenges you face as a future food company when you are trying to scale? And the future of my favorite mayo from Hampton Creek seems to be shaky. Will you come out with a eggless mayo product to capture the market? So, talk about first the your scale problem, the challenges you face. And Hampton Creek has has had some challenges as a company, as as many have reported. So, and last, are you going to make mayo? I mean, I don't want to, I think it's not fruitful for me to kind of compare us directly to, to Hampton Creek. And I, you know, I think that uh, that company has has the same, I would say, you know, nominal goals that we have. And, you know, it would be great if they were successful. As far as are we going to make mayo? Yeah, we have, we have work underway on pretty much, and our technology was built to enable this, pretty much every category of product we get from animals. So, if this were a video, I could show you a video of a fried egg, basically, that we've made in the lab. And, what? Um, a fried egg? Yeah. Hmm. I could uh-huh. show you offline, actually. All right, okay. All right. And so that's certainly something within our capabilities. I mean, it's not high on our priority list because there are already very good vegan mayos, you know, so that's that's not on our target list. But if, but if, if, if it's necessary to make mayo in order to compete against the um, chicken-derived egg industry, we could certainly do it. Does it have to be in that package? I don't like no. the package. No. You know, that's a very interesting point. This is kind of like what I was saying about anatomy. Mm-hmm. You know, 
what you get with meat from a cow, a lot of people, you know, I, I would just soon do without the gristle and, you know, mm-hmm. um, bone steak. and all that kind of stuff. With eggs, I think if you could just, uh, if Square. you could get your egg in a, in a little uh, a little package that you could peel off the top and, and cook it, it would probably be preferable Square. to a lot of people. Square, Square eggs. Square eggs. I don't know but why this sounds so the, unappealing right now. Do you like and the I shell? I eggs, but no, I'm like, I don't like the don't shell. Know. Who likes the shell? It's <laughs> weird. It but, breaks. I mean, it depends on what kind of egg you're talking about. Are we talking about soft-boiled eggs? Are we talking about, no, he's talking about a fried, fried egg? egg? We're talking, no, but... But what, a fried egg wouldn't come out of a package, would it? You need a package. Why not? For a See, fried I mean, uh, you need a uh, yolk. Uh, it needs to fry. In a chicken egg comes out of a package. It just happens it to be a shell made out of calcium carbonate. You could, you know, huh. it's calcium carbonate. Uh, huh. I, knew, I knew that. No, I didn't. Thank you for that. But I'm just saying, it's a bad package. Yes, a better package for an egg. Square yeah. eggs. Yeah. Why not? Whatever consumers want. I would like a square egg. That's Thank what we'll make. Well, now if you come up with square eggs, you're going to be. There is some pleasure in breaking an egg, though. There's like. It's, yeah, it's because it's, it's from your kid. If you yeah. they stop doing it, nobody yeah, would care. Well, I guess that's probably the next kids wouldn't care. Huh. Like, Got to do that. So too. is that yeah. something? That, so you're actively working on the fried egg, but the fried egg the replacement. Fried egg. Yes, Trying it's everything. not something that we're going to be commercializing in the very near term. He's making a lobster right now. I know it. There's a lobster going on in your pe- thing. Is there a lobster? <laughs> Look, he just smiled. Honestly. <laughs> I'd get rid of the package of the lobster too. Well, like, that's what the, the thing hell about is with the crab, like, about fish the too. Outside. There are obviously a lot of concerns about greenhouse gases and carbon emissions from the meat on land, but yeah. fish or the sustainability of our oceans and the ecosystem. Well, like the fish is a big concern either. right now as yeah. well. We're if working on fish. It, fish is a high priority. I've decided I am with you. I'm against anatomy. I am. Let's get rid of anatomy. But make it look the same. I have another question for you. Last question. Have you ever instructed your employees to go into stores and buy impossible burgers in the dozens? No. But you just did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we caught you. Actually, we I didn't instruct her to do it. That was her own idea. Yeah, it was right a good there. idea, and our staff really enjoyed it. Thank you, Pat. This has been great. And so you got this new funding, and you're just going to keep going. Yeah. All right. Well, this is great. We were thrilled to have you at Code, and I'm very thrilled to have you back. And we will have you again to talk about updates of where you're going. And I'm glad you haven't suffered the fate of Juicero. That's all my thing. Like, I know you made just a face. The burgers were delicious, and they're tastier than ever, and this is a different format. I got them, and I had a very famous chef cook it last time, and this is just from a, of course she did. a local. No, what's her name? What's the person from Burger Joint? Just, just tell, what was her name or his name? Nothing. I, I know many yeah, I'm not okay. going to go into the famous okay. people I know. My point is it was at a burger place versus a big restaurant. You know, I had a meal from, by a famous chef recently, too. I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who, but I'll tell you it was a real tough moment for me. This is very tough in the scale of first world problems because he came out and he presented a beautiful platter of beef tartare, like personally oh, oh, to no. us. And oh. I was like, uh, you should have eaten it. I had Sorry that for happen in time. France once. Someone put rabbit hearts in front of me and a famous chef and I said, absolutely not. Anyway, we appreciate you being here. This has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Pat, thank you for joining us and bringing the burgers, too. Thanks, Karen, Lauren. Thanks, Pat. If you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did in between bites of Impossible Foods Burger, be sure to subscribe to our show, and you can leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. And if you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can also subscribe on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, 
everywhere you listen to podcasts, we are there. Or you can just go to the website, go to recode.net slash podcasts. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. And The Verge also has a great podcast called The Vergecast, hosted by Neil I. Patel, so check that one out as well. Don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed or email them to Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. Thanks for listening and thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson, who would say hello, everybody, but he's got his face stuffed with a burger. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask, so tune in then. 